Can I just remind you on our, uh, on our uh, holiday brunch oral final thing, and this is like the feed of the year. This is awesome stuff. Um, and, and you guys just always amaze me in terms of the amount of food and the, and the stuff that you bring. And it's just, it's one of the things I look forward to all year. But let me also say that sometimes people, I think, have held off in coming because they didn't have something to bring or something. We're going to need a handful of people coming around 9 o'clock to help us uh, set up chairs and get ready. And if, if you're not in a place where you really have got something you want to bring and you want to just come a few minutes early and help us set up, that would be fabulous. Or wait a little bit after and help us take stuff down. So come anyway regardless. Uh, because it is always an amazing kind of thing. Okay, now we also have... We're going to hand these out just as reminders. We've got uh, the uh, Carrollton crash and the Allen crash information here. Yeah, we've got 700 exhibits on this one. Um, 15th Street will be singing in Allen at 5... Uh, should be good. Okay. Uh, that said, how was your uh, how's the holiday? Good. Okay. Did you learn anything over the weekend? Be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. We had our house was full of lots of little creepy crawlies, and they were just into everything. And our house was kind of going. <sighs> and the cats are still looking really. Like, are they really gone? Really? Okay. Okay, so no, nothing doctrinal that jumped out at you over the weekend. Okay. Well, very good. Well, that said, um, look, let me just begin today with, with this then. Uh, we have uh, moments in our life that I call threshold moments. There are those moments when we have kind of been trudging along through the wilderness or something that we've been doing, and then we get to this point where suddenly we're done, and we're standing at the threshold and we're looking at what's coming. We're about to get that with Israel. They've been 40 years, they've been kind of trudging around, lost in the wilderness, and now they're standing at the threshold moment, and they're about to get their graduation speech. Uh, when we get to those moments, think about graduations, or you've completed something, or you finally get a kid off on a mission, uh, or, or whatever. Um, as, as, as human beings, what do we tend to do at threshold moments? When we're standing right there, we, we think we know what's coming, we know what we've gone through back here. What do we tend to do at those moments? Hold back. Stop a little bit, or? Hold back. Hold back what? Just... Uh... You know, not, not ready to just jump out there. You're a little timid about jumping on out there. Why? Why would we be timid? It's, this is what we've been looking for, yeah, right? It's going into the unknown. It's the unknown. Okay? Yeah, because even if we've been going through, let's say that um, you've been going through cancer and you finish all the treatments and the doctor says, you're clean. Okay. What can I worry about now? What can I worry about now? <laughs> you know, it's like when, when we were playing the little clip from the, uh, from the, from the Prince's Bride. You, you know, and he said, I've been in the revenge business for so long. I do not know, know what to do with the rest of my life. Kind of thing. We have to work because it's so familiar what we've been doing. Okay? What else do we have a tendency to do at threshold moments? 
Why? Yeah, we might panic. Why? It is just, isn't it amazing? It's just that unknown. Even if it's, because if, uh, I, I remember at times when I would, uh, I remember walking after, after graduating uh, with my master's degree and going home and kind of thinking, now what? Or I remember uh, completing some things and then going, I was working at a hospital and having one of the psychologists say, I now need you to forget everything you've learned and now the real education begins. Okay, that, that we start recognizing that everything was a preparation for this moment and we're looking for this moment and then what? It happens. Yeah. Well, I think this is also partly because we suddenly have more freedom to make new choices. And that puts a responsibility on us that we get concerned, okay, what if I mess up? What if I make the wrong choice? What if yeah. I do make the right choice, but then I can't keep living up to that? See, one thing about the wilderness sometimes is it's very structured for us, right? We know what we do and how we do it and what comes next. Think about the, think about the Israelites. They had been trudging through the wilderness. And then they get to this point and they say, every morning we wake up and the manna is right there. And now we're about to enter into the promised land. And we have to cook our own breakfast. Two covers and girls. Yeah, yeah. Because we've been so used to it, even if it's been something negative, this step forward. And traditionally as society, what we tend to do is we tend to put graduation speeches right at the end of that moment, right? You're not going to be able to graduate from high school until everybody gets to say their thing. When uh, my son Patrick graduated uh, this last April, we had L. Tom Perry he came in and he's going to give the graduation speech which is kind of the charge to the graduates. All the things that they should do and not do. This moment has occurred. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and then based on that, then we're going to celebrate. We, we survived. We made it. We're done. It's always fascinating to be in sports. That there's always this wonderful little moment when, and it'll happen this year after the Super Bowl. Whoever wins the Super Bowl is going to stand there and they finally reach what the goal they've been out, maybe in some cases all their life. They're standing there at the podium. We won the Super Bowl. And then somebody will say, now what? And we'll go, yeah, after we go to Disneyland, then what? Um, um, repeat. Yeah, we'll repeat. Okay, so now you win two in a row. Now what? Um, three peeps. <laughs> you know, all we know is to do what we've been doing and to, and to step out and do something different is kind of a wide open experience. Well, sometimes there's disappointment because you build up Um, I, had a, I had a friend of mine uh, who was not real fond of Utah, and his, his belief was is that we put the wrong voice inflection on Brigham Young. He's parked up there, and he, you know, he's, he's sick with a Rocky Mountain spot of fever, and he crawls out, and he looks at the valley, and he goes, this is the place? Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes there is some disappointment that says, We've, we've spent so long getting to a certain point and now we're a little bit let down. Why? Because our expectations are here. Okay? 
Well, that's what's about to happen here. Forty years, Israel has been wandering through. Now, I promised you we were going to get to Joshua. Uh, we're not. Yeah. Good. He'll be ready in January. Because we're not even going to get out of Deuteronomy, and we may not get out of Deuteronomy 6. Um, but this is the graduation speech. This is Moses saying to them, and shortly after this, Moses will go up on Mount Nebo, and he'll get a chance to take a look at the promised land that he's not going to get to go into himself. And then he'll be translated, and Joshua will take him on in to the promised land. Okay? But this is his graduation speech. This is a repeat everything that has been said. So I want you to think about that because remember, we are Israel. This is our people. We tend to think, well, no, this is Jewish. No, this is Israel. This is us. This is our history. This is one of our prophets talking to the people right at this moment. Okay, so let's look at... Thank you. Fascinatingly enough, this the the first thing that's almost first thing that's going to come. Uh, I want to introduce you to the Shema. Uh, and I'll flip back and forth. So, if you want to turn to uh, Deuteronomy six, four through six. commandments, the statutes, the judgments. In other words, they're now going to go through all of the rules and all of the things and all the statutes before going into the promised land. And at one point, we don't know if it happened at the whole time, uh, at one point when you get into uh, uh, Deuteronomy 11, actually Moses splits Israel and puts one half on this mountain that is really kind of uh, doing well and it's green and lush. Another one on the other mountain and it's kind of uh, bald and desolate. And they're going to talk about blessings and curses. It's going to be the ultimate uh, object lesson. But at least for a certain amount of this, he's going to begin with the Shema. Uh, and, and verse 4 is the beginning of the Shema. Anybody might know why we call it the Shema? Any, any Jewish history? Okay. The Shema uh, to, uh, to Jews, it, Shema means here. So the very first word here in verse 4 is, in, in Hebrew, is Shema. Here. The Shema is repeated, uh, it's supposed to be repeated morning and night. It doesn't, it doesn't supplant your own individual prayers. But it is a prayer liturgy that Jews are supposed to, to do. And what they do is that if you're going to do it right, you break out your handy-dandy tallit. And then what you're going to do, there are four long tassels on, on your handy-dandy tallit. And you're going to take the four longest tassels 
And you're going to repeat the Shema. And the Shema is verse 4. Shema Israel Adonai Alinehu Adonai Eshad. Which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The, the, the longest the longest passage, there are four. And, and, you, and you hold on to those. Hold on to that question. Because we're going to talk about the fact that so much of, of uh, uh, Israel, when we got through the, the um, rabbinic period of time, became so specific about things that some of the, the symbolism was lost and they tried to prescribe exactly what needed to be said and how. Okay? So this is the this is the Shema. Um, just as a uh, in fact, let me do this. I'm gonna pop back over. By the way, that is, that is uh, the Shema that, that's written out. Uh, Shema Israel going right to left, Shema Israel. Um, you'll notice that there you see two letters that are uh, longer than the rest first one is the Ein uh, at the end of Shema Shema okay? those two longer letters are combined to to, uh, to spell uh, witness that this is a witness that we are keeping all of these covenants and that Israel that, that our Lord is one Lord that we will worship no other gods but this God. Okay? Now, it's a remembering. A couple of things I want you to, to see. And we're going to... So I want you to keep these pictures in mind when we start taking a look at it. Uh, the little square box up on top of phylacteries. Okay? What's in the phylactery? It's, it's the Shema. Okay, in other words, we're going to repeat all this. We're going to put it in here. Because in a second we're going to talk about that this needs to be on the frontlets between your eyes. Okay, and you'll notice that he's got it wrapped around his arm. Okay, it needs to be on the hand. And you can't see it because I put the, the, uh, I put the door in front of it. Yes. But he's got a, he's got another little, uh, Box, leather box on the back, and you get this shema in it. Okay. Now, anybody uh, go on a mission and, and track through any Jewish areas? Okay. Recognize the mezuzah, which was usually a sign that says "knocking on this door will be fun" <laughs> and a challenge. Okay. If you look, you can't see it very well, but the mezuzah is is the metal. On, on the side and it will have the Shema inside. Generally it will have the Sheen, the S uh, on the front of it. The first letter of the Shema. Okay? Now, why is it crooked? It's crooked because when we got into rabbinic times the rabbis couldn't uh, conclude whether the uh, mezuzah was supposed to be vertical or horizontal. So the compromise is that you put a diagonal with the bottom towards the door that you're walking through. Okay? So every time, and this is kind of a fun little tradition though, 
that when they walk through the door, then, then you kiss your these finger and, and tap it on the mezuzah, basically saying what? I love the commandments and I love the Lord. Nice tradition. It's one of those things, again, can you imagine if we had like some scripture from the Book of Mormon or something and we had it in the mezuzah on our door. And every time we walked in the door to our house, we're just giving gratitude. That's what I said. There are times I have holy envy. This is one of them. And I think it's a cool little reminder to say we love the commandments. We actually have some adoration for those. Okay? I don't think I knew that. The Muslims have a black box. Do we know what's probably part a quote from the Quran? Uh-huh. They go to Mecca to the Kabbalah. Right. And they have that black box there, so they have them copy it on their Oh. Center stone. Oh, gotcha. All right. All right. So that said. Let's go back then. We we do things so too. We put pictures of the temple up in our house I used to work with a I used to work with a guy that uh, was in a lot of LDS homes because of the nature of the thing that he did, and he and he and he finally stopped me and he said, "Is there like a Mormon store around here?" Because he says all the Mormons homes I go into all have the same pictures, <laughs> the same stuff. Yeah. But in Jewish, the symbolism is more important than it is to Mormon. We don't worship the symbolism. Yeah. And it is a part of that, and everything is built around remembering, 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 remembering. And that's what's happening with Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy is saying to them, remember that I brought you through. Um, now, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord with all... Lord thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Um, and, and these words which I commanded this day shall be in thy heart. Now, let me hop down here. Verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand. That was the wrapping around the hand. Uh, and shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them on the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Okay? Now, let, let me stop for a sec. In fact, I'm going to flip back over here. One of the things that happens in, in, it happened in uh, Jewish society is that these things obviously were given and then thousands of years coming forward were repeated. 
Now, in it, when, when the, the Pharisees and kind of the, the Sadducee kind of way of looking at things, now we're going to operationalize all those all these things that were originally symbolic, and we're going to make them very strict. Like, keep the Sabbath day holy, but then we're going to break, start breaking it down so it's exactly how many uh, bits of grain can you pull off of, a, of the uh, wheat before you're now harvesting. If you're going to spit and it rolls in the dirt, how far can it spit before that's working? Okay, so so a lot of things got operationalized, and that's what we're that's what was happening here. As far as I can tell, and I did my own research on this one, is that the wearing of phylacteries and do, and actually having a physical object between the eyes, they don't think really showed up to the very earliest about 200 years before Christ and more likely about 200 years after Christ. So we actually have a couple thousand years where they're not doing it. So at that point it's symbolic. Now, here's my question to us as Latter-day Saints. For us, we are also Israelites. Where everybody kind of gets confused. Yes, we're Christian, but we're also Israelites. That said, what is he saying to us? How do we take this commandment and bind them with a sign between upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes? How do we do that? We wear special garments. We are wearing things that are symbolic of the covenants that we made. Okay, but it's interesting though that he's talking specifically about three places, right? Our, our, between our eyes, our hands, and the poles. Yeah. Okay, so here's going to be mind. Oh, so what do you do with your hands? Yeah. Bless other people. We use our hands to bless other people. And serve. Make covenants. Isn't that interesting? Uh, when uh, when my, uh, on Friday we, we uh, baptized my uh, little granddaughter. Okay? And, and watching my son in the water when it's time to uh, perform the baptism, what does he do? Okay? But he, there's a covenant going on here. And it's in the remembrance of... God, and, and later in here we're going to find that God saying, I brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. And in essence, this is going to be a, a reminder that you too do things with your hand. Serve. Covenant. Anything else? Yeah, you can use it to pray. That's true. You can use it to reach out and take a sacrament. Right. Okay, so, so we think... We, we serve. How about the how about the other one? How about on the doorposts? Our homes. Our, our sacred places. Our homes should sacred be sacred places. places. What else? Our temples are sacred places. Our bodies. Okay, specifically. Remember the symbolism here. What doorposts are we talking about? Our hearts. 
That the idea here symbolically is, is that we're, we're trying to write the law where? On our inner parts, on our heart. Okay? Is the post also the pillar? Yeah, well, there's yeah, the posts and then the... So it's similar to the pillar that Jacob had. No, the, the, the pillar that Jacob had was actually a reminder. It's an Ebenezer. It's a memorial. It's, a, it's like a headstone. Oh, okay. Okay? Good guess. Oh, thank you. How does the law get written? Do you possess the ability to write the law in your heart? No. How does he do it? We, we open up, think of Alan 32. Okay? We open up the soil, and what does he do? Plants the seed. The seed is planted, and then we nourish it. So our job is to nourish what he plants. Does that make sense? So that then it's going to go on our heart. Yeah. Yeah, and hold on to that idea too, because we're going to we're about to talk about gratitude, and he's going to tell us something specifically about what's waiting for us over here in the land of promise. Okay. Now, let me show you one other thing that I think is fascinating about the Shema. The Shema says. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In other words, we need we need to be hearers. We need to be listeners. What are we hearing? What does He need us to hear? His words. Commandments, statutes. Yes, we need to we need to hear them. In other words, we need but but don't we know what the commandments are? Don't most people can usually if we say, Do you know the Ten Commandments, they can at least throw out a couple of them. Sometimes literally throw out a couple of them. Huh? Yes, we do. Uh, I thought uh, um, tr- um, Michael Wilcox given a beautiful talk on, if you go through the Doctrine and Covenants, he shows three steps. He says three beautiful L words that talk about our relationship with God. And he says, first of them, first one is to look to Him, number one. Second, we have to learn of Him. And third, we have to listen to Him. If we have done those three, you think the next step, there is another L word, and that's love. Because he says, uh, look to me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Then he says, learn of me. Then finally he's going to say, listen. And in fact, most of the times in the Book of Mormon, it isn't so much listen as much as it is hearken. Hearken means to do. Hear and then do. Okay? So, and so I actually like that. Wilcox missed something, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. We, we will add that one. That we're going to look to him, then we learn of him. Once we learn of him, we listen. Now, let, let me stop for a second. Who do you decide in your life who you listen to? If there are a lot of voices, 
whether it's in the media or at church, who do you listen to? How, who do you decide who you listen to? Yes. But if you had if you had if you needed something and you needed either advice or counsel or you're going to try make a decision about something, who do you choose who you listen to? Whatever's in your best interest. Whatever's in your best interest according to who? You. you. It's in my best interest to listen to this person. Why? Because you trust them. Oftentimes, and we all, we have a tendency to, to listen to and trust those that we think care about us, have our best interests. Why would you listen to somebody who really hates you and, oh, wait a minute, we tend to do that a lot, don't we? <laughs> Sometimes when we struggle in, in, our, in our self-esteem, it's amazing how often we listen to the voices of people who are critical to, of us. And we go, well, that must be true. Then we're listening to the wrong voices. Because you cannot not listen. You're going to listen to somebody. In the morning when we say our prayers, we pray that whatever the Lord has for us that day, or if He has a message for us, that we will be in tune and hear it. Then when somebody speaks something, it will ring within us because, well, that's it. That's what, you know, that's the impression. Yeah. But I've been in sacrament meetings where I have. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I say. So we're listen, listen to the li- listen to the words you're listening to, listen to the people that you're listening to. Where are you taking counsel from? Fascinating to me when I work with couples in my office, and I will have couples that, and they are going back and forth and discussing. And like the husband is here, and the wife is here, and it's like two parallel tracks. It's like the old days when uh, when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad. You know, there was one group coming from the east, one group coming from the west, and they were getting paid as long as they were working. And so they got to a point where now it's time to join, but we're making lots of money. So they just kept going. So now you have two parallel tracks running back and forth. Till finally somebody in Washington went, that's enough. Hook them up. Well, so I, get, I see that in marriage as well. And they are, one is saying, I need this, I need this. I, you may be mad, the other one is saying, I need this, I need this. And they're talking, 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 but they are not listening. Listening involves, I will hear it and respond to it and hearken. So often when couples are really struggling, there's no hearkening. There's a lot of talking, but there's no listening. I think it's because they're more interested in their own agenda. Yeah. Okay, now with that agenda, is that why it is, though, that we don't, we're not listening to the Lord? Because we have our own agenda, right? Perfect. Now, I want, I want you to see one other thing, though. So the, the Shema is the process that we need to, 
Listen to the Lord. Listen to what He has to tell us. Love His commandments. Now I want you to turn for just a second uh, over to DMC 109, verse 78. One oh nine. Anybody know right off the top of your head what is one oh nine? Colonel Temple dedication. Okay. So here is here they're dedicating the temple. Uh, whoever's who's got seventy eight? Can read that one out loud. Got it? Okay. Thank you. Oh here, oh here, oh hear us, oh Lord. Okay, so say, say that one again. Does this sound familiar? What does it sound like? The Shema. It sounds like the Shema, but the Shema is we are hearing God and, and then we're trying to hear His commandments. What's taking place in this one? Oh, hear us. Oh, oh hear, oh, hear, oh, hear us, oh, Lord. What? We're asking Him to hear us. Yes. Now we're getting, if the first one is Shema Israel, Israel needs to hear him. Uh, this is Shema Adonai. This is uh, hear us Lord. We need him to hear us. And, and, and I love the rest of this. Go ahead and read the rest of that verse. So in other words, he's saying we need to listen to him, but now they're petitioning him to hear us. That that hearing goes both ways. Covenant making is kind of this way. We hear one another. In fact, I love, isn't there verse 79? Why don't you read 79? I love that. Yes. Bright shining seraphs around thy throne with acclamations of praise, singing Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Isn't that cool? The bright shining seraphs. In other words, these who are the seraphs? Angels. Fascinating. When was the last time that we did? Uh, when we covenant, who all is usually involved in the covenant making between us and God? In front of, we tend to do it in front of witnesses and angels. Angels are involved in the hearing process. Okay, this is Shema in reverse. In other words, this listening process... And, and if you and if you walked into the Temple of Solomon, we were talking about this before, is there a symbol in there that, that symbolizes prayers ascending to heaven? What? The altar of incense. Absolutely. And it runs continually. Oh, hear us, oh, hear us, oh, hear us. It's the Shem Alright. Alright. Okay. Now we've done verse 4. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work at a Paul Jewish country club. Yeah. Paul Jewish. Very wealthy people. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it, she, she says that she never saw a yarmulke 
at, at the, the Jewish golf course. My guess is you might have been more likely to see it if it was like uh, Saturday evening uh, or on, during the high holidays, during Yom Kippur. Uh, you're more likely to see them wearing a little bit more in public. But it also is a function of, uh, within Judaism, uh, those that are very orthodox and ultra-orthodox on one side, and then those that are uh, uh, conservative, and then those that are reformed. Uh, my friend that married a Jewish uh, woman, uh, she, is, she is reformed. And so that's why she was actually able to marry outside of the faith, and that the rabbi endorsed that she was marrying a Mormon. They were all right with that. In fact, they had the whole Jewish shindig, and they're up on chairs with the band playing, and we're running them around the room. And it's just but that wouldn't have happened in, in an ultra orthodox setting. Just would not. Have. My grandmother was so very liberal that she didn't sell my part of the band when we became Christians. Yeah, yeah. It just depends on how that goes. Okay. So, all right. Now. The whole purpose of this, remember, we now have people that have been wandering for 40 years. And you've got kids that have grown up in this time that have never known Egypt and always heard about the promised land, but they've just grown up in the wilderness. Okay? Now, here comes the injunction. Look at verse 7. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them. Now, if you want to, if you want to, here comes a little parenting tip. Want to figure out how to be a good parent and help plant the gospel seed in their heart. Listen to how this is done. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And teach them when? Talk of them, the commandments, when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. There's a gentleness here. I, I've mentioned before that one of my earliest memories of my mother was I remember sitting in the kitchen and I remember her standing at the stove and she's cooking something. I have no idea what it is that she was cooking. But I remember turning to me and I couldn't have been, given the house where, we, where I had the memory, I couldn't have been more than four or five. And I, kept, and I remember her turning and almost being a little emotional. And she said... I can't believe that the Lamanites just wouldn't listen. And because of that, they had to die. I just, or the Nephites, I can't believe that the Nephites wouldn't listen and the Lamanites were able to. And I'm listening, and then she started telling me about Kimura. And I don't know how long she talked, it's a brief memory, but I remember her just standing and cooking, and she saw that she had a captive audience sitting there waiting for dinner, and, and she decides to take that moment to tell me about Kimura. Sweet, sweet memory. But I think it embodies this. When we have times to know we're driving down the road and moms, you that are getting to be like sister taxi driver, don't you have all these great times to just be able to discuss stuff? Sometimes we're talking about their needs. But what a great time to say, you know what? I was reading something really cool today. I'm learning something about King Benjamin. Or, you ever heard about the Shema? Let me tell you about the Shema. 
Okay. I like this quote from Elder Cook. Wendy, can you see that one? Yeah. Okay, you want to read that one? This feeling of accountability, which is encompassed by the first great commandment to love God, has been described by some as obedience to the unenforceable. We try to do what, what is right because we love and want to please our Father in heaven, not because someone is forcing us to obey. There's the challenge that we have as parents when it comes to these commandments. When we're talking about how do you enforce the unenforceable. When, when you've got like a teenage son that's getting older and he's much bigger than you are, how do you enforce the unenforceable? How do you get people to read their scriptures and say their prayers short of like sitting next to them to make sure that they do it? How do you make sure that they begin to enforce it themselves? That's the challenge. He's exactly right. It's, it's enforcing the unenforceable. going to church and all those things. 
in a way that they do it on their own. See, I still remember the days prior to that one, and that's part of the, the talk and chapter study that came out of BYU. Prior to that, we've done the correlational studies that said, you know, kids that get married in the temple are more likely to have gone on missions, and kids that have gone on missions were more likely to get their Eagle Scouts. So put everything into making sure they get their Eagle Scouts. Now, these are going to correlate, and so we cram hard to make sure they get their Eagle Scouts, because we thought getting Eagle Scouts makes them get married in the temple, which, you know, and it turns out, no, the, the underlying thread that they ran through all of that was that private spiritual behavior. They did things on their own. Yeah. I think sometimes we let them have to make their own decisions. Our oldest daughter one time was in my brother's uncle's house, my brother, and they had kids her age, and she called me up and she said, Mom, they went up to Rio that's in New Mexico, beautiful country. She said, Can I go? I said, Well, what's tomorrow? She said, It's Sunday. I said, What do we do on Sunday? Well, we're at church. I said, What do you think? She said, I'm going. I said, I said You're old enough to make your own decision. She was about 15. What, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going. So when she came home that night, she said, Mom, I've never been so miserable in my life. They were running around praying, and I'm sitting over the saying, she'd be in church. And she's the only one we got after about three. They've got to be able to do that. That's the balance. And it was hard. Because I, I failed. We failed. I turned around and looked at my husband and said, We failed as a parent. She's going to be a person. <laughs> we like that. So, Kevin, what makes a child that isn't brought up right go right? Ooh. There's a good go. Say that again. What makes a child that was not brought up right go right? Turn right. Or that they've been fighting and rebellious. You know, because we do have these kids. You know, they come out of the womb, the doctor slaps them, they slap back. And they were that way from day one. You're going to fight you every step of the way. I got a text yesterday in church from a from a bishop, and we're trying to get a kid in to come see me, and and he wanted to set it up so that this kid is going to come to see me. And I kept saying to the bishop, he that would be uh, that's worth it to bring him in when he's ready to be there. So he went back to this kid and and brought it up, and he's heard me speak in church, and there's a chance that he may be willing. But right now he says I'm not ready yet. And so the bishop said, fine. And he texted me and said, I talked to him. He's not necessarily willing yet. And I said, awesome. We're looking for those moments. There will come a moment. We, we open the door, but they've got to be able to walk through it themselves. That is enforcing the unenforceable. You're, you're having to choose to pick your spots. Now, obviously, there's some things like you've got to go to get up and go to school and stuff. Sometimes you're going to have to force an issue. Anyway, part of what they're trying to do here. This threshold moment is a matter of saying, most of the people that were in Egypt are now dying out. What are we going to teach the kids? And a lot of Deuteronomy is saying, let's set up things in such a way so that we begin to write the gospel on their heart. Now, 
There's some things that, that the Lord directed through the laws of Moses to try and uh, help up the chances that it gets written. Okay? Here's one of them, and I think this is a, this is a fascinating point. Oh, I like that one. Okay. Now, the Lord said, It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou what? Buildest not. Who's there? Canaanites. All, this is not an uninhabited promised land. Yeah, in some cases they kept them, in a lot of cases they destroyed them. I'm going to bring you to great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not. Vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Then he says, Then beware lest thou do what? Forget the Lord, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Okay, put that in different words. What's he trying to, what's he trying to teach them here? Be grateful for what? That they have all these things that they didn't have to work for. These are gifts. They're, these are gifts that have been provided. And it's stuff that you're getting gifts that you didn't have to really work for. You just had to be there. Okay? Now, modern Israelites, what's he telling us? Grace. Symbolic. Symbolic of the atonement. The atonement is we're going to get things that. We really don't deserve. That's, that's why we never want justice, right? Don't give me justice. I want mercy. What about there are blessings for those who follow the There are blessings. Come on, modern Israelites. What do we do every July? Don't we talk about this? Pioneer Day, right? Don't we have the blessings of the gospel that we build us not? Don't we receive all of the all the things, the traditions of this? Okay. Talking about the St. George Tabernacle. By the way, that there are 184 clusters of grapes carved into the ceiling coins of that building. Some of those sermons were really long. But most of all, I enjoyed counting the window panes. 2,244 of them. Because I grew up on the story of Peter Nielsen. One of those little noted and now forgotten saints of whom we've been speaking. In the course of constructing that tabernacle, the local brethren had ordered the glass for the windows from New York and had it shipped around the Cape to California. But a bill of $800 was due and paid. 
responsibility of raising the needed funds. After painstaking effort, the entire community, giving virtually everything they had to these two monumental building projects, had been able to come up with $200 cash. On sheer faith, Brother Cannon committed a team of freighters to prepare to leave for California to get the glass. He continued to pray that the enormous balance of $600 would somehow be forthcoming before their departure. Living in nearby Washington, Utah was Peter Nielsen, a Danish immigrant who had been saving for years to add on to his modest two-room adobe home. On the eve of the freighter's departure for California, Peter spent a sleepless night in that tiny little house. He thought of his conversion in far-off Denmark and his subsequent gathering with the saints in America. After coming west, he had settled and struggled to make a living in Sandpeet. And then just as some prosperity seemed imminent there, he answered the call to uproot and go to the cotton mission, bolstering the pathetic and sagging efforts of the alkali-soiled, malaria-plagued, flood-bedeviled settlers of Dixie. As he lay in bed that night, contemplating his years in the church, he weighed the sacrifices asked of him against the wonderful blessings he had received. Somewhere in those private hours, he made a decision. Some say it was a dream, others say an impression. Still others simply a call to duty. However the direction came, Peter Nielsen arose before dawn. On the morning, the teams were to leave for California. With only a candle and the light of the gospel to aid him, Peter brought out of a secret hiding place $600 in gold coins. Half eagles, eagles, double eagles. His wife Karen, aroused by the pre-dawn bustling, asked why he was up so early. He said only that he had to walk quickly the seven miles to St. George. As the first light of morning fell on the beautiful red cliffs of southern Utah, a knock came at David H. Cannon's door. There stood Peter Nielsen, holding a red bandana, which sagged under the weight it carried. Good morning, David, said Peter. I hope I'm not too late. You'll know what to do with this money. With that, he turned on his heel and retraced his steps back to Washington back to a faithful and unquestioning wife, and back to a small two-room adobe house that remained just two rooms for the rest of his life. One other account from those early faithful Don't, don't we wait for the rest of the story? That somehow, miraculously, he gets, because of that sacrifice, that somehow he gets a bigger house than the two-room adobe. He's got a mansion now. Yeah, he's got a mansion now. But in this life, he died in that two-room adobe house. There was never... We also don't know the full story. Jerry's up or not. Yeah. 
But it gives you some idea. These are the, these are the giants on whose shoulders we stand. And I, I'm just always... And, and sometimes it gets to be a little trite and we go back and we talk over and over about the pioneers and we go, oh, it's July again. We're going to get more pioneer stories. about pioneered out. And then you, if you really start getting a sense, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons why. What impressions do you get, those of you who have been recently to Nauvoo or Palmyra or Kirtland? What impressions do you get there? The suffering that they Yeah. Yeah. We went, we went just this year, and it's phenomenal just what you see and all that they gave up. Yeah, we were just in awe of everything that they, that they built and did out there. With, with what little uh, means that they had at their disposal. You do feel like you're on holy ground, don't you? Yeah. And they and, and the thing that I'm always struck by is again, we we get to enjoy all the blessings of the gospel that we built not. They put all of these things together and then they've now passed passed on and now it's up to us and the question is, what are you doing with it? Like the faith of our fathers. We we it's like the, the Olympic torch, you know, and it gets Handed to you, and now you get to run with it. What are you doing with it? And you have more first-generation Mormons now than you do pioneers. The church is made up of first-generation Mormons because of the, the amount of conversion stuff that's happening. Yeah. Okay. Now, can, can I just mention one other thing, though? For those of you, sometimes in the church, there's a tendency to say, "Well." I didn't have pioneers across the plains. I didn't have people in Nauvoo. Maybe I'm the only member of my family. So that really doesn't apply to me. Now, I know that I trace my ancestry back. If I'm going to follow it, I follow my, on my dad's side, I'm going to follow the Hinkley line, and then I'm going to go to uh, Upper Canada, and then I'm going to connect with uh, uh, those missionaries who brought them the gospel. They become part of our conversion lineage. And I'm going to suggest to each one of us here that maybe don't have pioneer stock. How did you get into church? Whoever helped convert you has pioneer lineage. Your, their, their ancestry is partly yours. You connect with them. You are in a church you didn't build, but you're receiving all the blessings of it through that conversion lineage. Also, I had, I had a grandma who was one of like three families in New Mexico, and she, she wrote the General Grace was eligible at the time. She said, what do I do? You know, there's nobody for my daughters to marry. We have a church, we, we have a rented hall. And, and they wrote back and said, Strong, the church is going to come to you. And by the time I left there, as you know, you know, adult, you know, as a saint or an old Eastern Paso. Wow. You know, and, and she, she sacrificed. You know, she sacrificed for me, you know, my generation. So, there's some pioneering. Oh, abs- absolutely. You know, teaching all the beliefs inside of us, and she ran a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
See, on, on Cindy's side, she gets the blessings of the gospel from her mom. Her mom, her, her pioneers here today. And, and that's that's how it works. Yeah. Does that mean the missionaries have brought me the gospel or my pioneer? Yes, very much. In other words, you can tie into their, if you want pioneer lineage, tie into their ancestry. I mean, that, that their conversion lineage is yours. Is it like a line of authority? I think so. I think that's why I say I, I, I call it conversion lineage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our uh, my, my daughter and her family were here. They're living in uh, Salem, uh, Utah. They have twenty six missionaries out from their ward. Half are girls. It just exploded them. Yeah. Okay, let me let me do this. I'm going to jump ahead because that, that's a perfect comment with where I wanted to go. I'm going to go backwards. But yeah. um, I was also thinking of, you know, we're constantly converted to the gospel and we interact with people all the time, through primary, young, you know, youth and all up to adults. So that lineage is ours as well. You know, that we build our lives on others' strengths. I, I think that's exactly it. Okay, Neil A. Maxwell, 1977. Just a a reminder. Let us minimize our personal errors which enemies could exploit. Let us conquer the weaknesses which critics could work on. Let us be harmless so that we go not forth on ego excursions that damage others, for we are people builders as well as kingdom builders. And he's talking about the fact what happens when the church comes out of obscurity and comes out into the bright light. And, and this is 1977. Where are we at today? In 1977, would we have had a, a Mormon presidential candidate? I doubt that. I think our perspective needs to be that we are preparing for the second coming of the Savior, no matter what's going on politically or right. It does. And, and I think what, what Elder Maxwell is going to try and say here is as we, as we get really focused on our divine responsibility to prepare our kids, to prepare this church for the second coming, and we come up out of, out of obscurity, suddenly the, the, the criticism is going to increase exponentially. There are a number of areas where it looks like we are more accepted, but we're, it's a harsher criticism and it's going to get much more strident. Because 
And he talks about the fact that Satan was okay as long as we were a weird little church off in the corner. But when we begin to be this noticeable, buckle up. And that, that's what he's going to say. Let our citizenship be spirited, but always appropriate and befitting who we are. Let, and, and, and this is part of, if I've had another goal for, for this institute class, it's been this. This kind of runs through everything that we've looked at. Let us be articulate, for while our defense of the kingdom may not stir all hearers, the absence of thoughtful response may cause fledglings among the faithful to falter. Again, we have forever left the day where you have a child or you have somebody new to the church who says, what about this? And your response is, it's not important to your salvation. Don't worry about it. Those days have to be gone. We have to have an answer for these questions that arise. And that's what he's saying. We have to be ready to defend the church in a loving gentle, firm way. If somebody wants to know why it is the church practiced polygamy, you better have an answer. And don't be contentious. And don't be contentious about it. You kind of lose the whole battle there, don't you? But, 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 we, do, but we do need to have answers. Now, granted, there are going to be those moments when the answer is... It's just never been revealed to us. I, we still don't know. But I would say nine out of ten questions, we ought to have at least, we should be able to have some kind of answer for. We have to defend this church that we did not build. And you get to that point, you don't go find out. The church is now preparing information that will be available to you to answer these thorny questions. And that's what we've tried to not shy away from some of these things as they come up. What we assert may not be accepted, but unasserted convictions soon become asserted convictions. Let your education be emancipating in all the correct ways, but also in very subtle ways. A way clearly related to your role in the tempestuous times before you. And I, and I picture this as we're going forward. We are, we're modern Israel and we're standing, this is like a brave new world. We're sending out all these missionaries. Our, our awareness of who we are is out there. We are standing ready to cross the Jordan. And, and we don't know what to expect. We knew what to expect when we were a weird little cult church off in the corner. We don't know how to accept ourselves as a mainstream force in the world for good, and we better be ready to speak clearly about it. I refer to the need to understand the principle of obedience, which has fallen on hard times. <laughs> Obedience is low on the world scale of values. What happens if you say to a friend, friend of yours, uh, how do you know what to do? Oh, we have a prophet. Really? 
and, and our prophet speaks with God. And they say, you mean like Waco? There was a man who spoke with God, and so you're supposed to follow him just like Waco. Those of you been around a little longer, just like Jim Jones and God. Just like, yeah. No, it's like Abraham. Yeah, but Abraham was... I don't know. I was what I would say to that. I'd say, no, not like that. I'd say like Abraham. But how do you know it's an Abraham and how do you know it's not a David Koresh? <laughs> because we know what happens. We have these little examples around us of obedience to a prophet who speaks with God. And they get these little samplings, don't they? So when you're talking about we have a prophet, they go... Ears perk up. There are causes for this, of course. Some have done terribly wrong in obedience to unjust leaders. Some have engaged in senseless subordination to bad causes, becoming mere satellites in mindless orbits. <laughs> it is, you have to read. You have to read Neil Maxwell slowly sometimes. Some have engaged in senseless subordination to bad causes. Uh, we call them terrorists. Uh, becoming mere satellites in mindless orbits. And then Satan always pretzelizes principles in order to increase human misery. <laughs> Is that a great word? I don't, I don't, he may be the first one in history to talk about pretzelizing. Okay, so could you describe what a pretzelized principle would be? We're going to twist and turn and everything to try and explain something. interesting. If we go back here, he says, how do we, how do we resolve this? And he's going to go back to exactly what the Shema is trying to say. Obey. I refer to the need to understand the principle of obedience which has fallen on hard times. In other words, I'm going to send Israel into the promised land, but to make sure that they survive, in prosperity, rather than the wilderness, is it's even more important now that they obey. Yeah. It's very true that the lady I teach piano to, uh, uh, anyway, the, the thing that holds her back is this lot of people telling her what to do. Yeah. Thank you. 
twist is what makes us free. That's what makes us free. And this whole concept is yep. one by bias, the world tries to take away consequences instead of obedience to the law. That's so true. And I think that was, I think some people would look at Israel getting all of these laws of Moses and going, it's prescribing when you get to, you know, the, the Sabbath days and how you're supposed to do this. And, but it was obedience. It was, and it was the process of bringing them from bondage through the wilderness of affliction and then ultimately into prosperity, freedom. They had the greatest freedom in the land of promise. Okay. We got about, about five minutes. Um, okay, let me finish with this. Elder Oaks. When we think of service. Thinking about the, the process of becoming obedient in the promised land. When we think of service, we usually think of the acts of our hands. Okay? But as shown in earlier chapters, the Lord looks to our hearts as well as our hands. He is concerned not only with our acts, but also with our motives. One of the earliest commandments to Israel was, Love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart. Mind and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 11. Now, here's my question. Why is motive so important? Why is he so worried about... If he's just saying, I just need you to serve with your hand, he's saying, I need you to serve with your heart, your whole soul. Why is motive in our obedience so critical? And, and missing the whole thing. It's okay. a higher law. It is a higher law. Our soul is God's spirit <coughs> child. So we have to love and obey with our whole soul, our whole spirit as well. Okay. I like that. Well, when we obey out of love for the Lord, it keeps us going off these tangents. Because if, if we're doing something to please this person or please that or even though it looks like we're serving for all the right reasons it looks like we're serving but we may be doing it for all the wrong reasons and that, and that can, can our service take us away from God absolutely can't that, that's, that's the motive It seems to me that the Old Testament, the, the, they were obeying the God because of, the, of fear. It was uh, fear of the Lord. Where the New Testament was, we obey because of love of the Lord. Ah, that could be. Hold on to that one. Yeah. Well, it seems like the whole point of mortality is not to not as to what we do, but who we become. Does that make sense? And actually, other Oaks is going to. Yeah, it has a great talk on becoming. Because at the end of the day, when we stand at the judgment bar, we were not going to be judged on what we did, will we? We will be judged on who we have become. What our obedience did for us in changing and transforming us 
to become like him. Yeah. Um, I think something we forget often is that we are spiritual beings on this mortal earth. And yeah. We're And in order to do that, we've got to begin, we've got to obey, but we've got to do it for the right reasons. That's why motive becomes so important here. Yeah? I always believe why is our motive so important? If we don't really believe in our motive, we don't make any headway at all. We go actually lose, lose ground. We do lose ground. And, I, and let me point that out. In order to purify our service to God and our fellow men, it's important to consider not only how we serve, but why we serve. Here's six reasons why we serve. And he's going to give us six reasons why we serve. Think about your callings. Think about the things that you do. Earthly reward is one. Good companionship. It's a nice social place to, to hang out. Fear of punishment. And the Old Testament was heavy on the fear part. Okay? Duty or loyalty? I'm not sure I really believe it, but I love my bishop, and if he says do it, I'll do it. Hope of reward. There will be a mansion waiting for you on the other side. Okay. And finally, charity. And that's the part that we're trying to get to. We serve because we love, and we do the same things that God would do if He were here because we're coming from the same place. Our hearts have become one, one with Him. Which is what the Savior was pleading in John 17 to try and say, let them become one in me as I am in thee. Let, that we be one together. That's the one God. Is we're one. We're, our oneness means we do all the right things for the right reasons, the same reason He would do it. We know from these inspired words that even the most extreme acts of service fall short in the ultimate profit unless they are motivated by the pure love of Christ. Service. If our service is to be the most efficacious, it must be unconcerned with self and heedless of personal advantage. It must be accomplished for the love of God and the love of His children. I would suggest to you that as Latter-day Saints, this is our ultimate battle and ultimate struggle. I think as humans on mortals, in this journey, to get to the point that we serve for the same reason that He serves us is our most difficult task. Because so often we serve and we do the best we can, but we gripe and struggle and then we do it anyway and we just hang in there and then, boy, this is hard. We grow in shape as we do it. It's like lifting weights. We grow in shape. And, and we can evaluate ourselves too all the time. We're one with two different types of service. Number one, A plus, Christy. The other one, C minus. <laughs> yeah. I can see it. Sometimes, sometimes I do okay, sometimes not so much. It's stark. That, that's why the greatest uh, 
Uh, I can't remember which one of the brethren said, the greatest miracle that occurred that the Savior has performed is the change of a human heart. And that's why it's such a battle and it's such a problem. It's a, it's a struggle to get to that point. And I think that's what Moses had desperately tried to have happen at Sinai. Uh, kept hoping would happen in, in uh, the wilderness. Now they stand ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land and they still were not there. And, he, and in a sense, it would require that Moses would leave Java done. He did the best he could, but they had to be able to move at their rate. He, he would have wanted more. He desperately wanted them to see the face of God. They refused. Then we get all the battle that's going to go with once they get into the promised land. That's our battle. That's our struggle. Sometimes we are the Moseses in our family. We're trying desperately to get our family or our loved ones or our primary class or whoever it is. We're trying to get them to a certain point. And they're, they're going to do it when they're ready, not when we're ready. And they will do it when their hearts are changed. This is the, I think it's a lifetime of service that requires, that, that will result in that change of heart. Brothers and sisters, the thing that I love about what we've been doing this semester is that we should be seeing us and the children of Israel. We are them. We... That our, our process of moving from bondage through the wilderness experience into the promised land gets to be our experience. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Go ahead. The things you said are absolutely true. Uh, Frederick Douglass, an ex slave, I think, put all these things in one uh, statement that he said the measure of a man is not what he is. Of what he is today compared to what he was yesterday. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that. And that, that's what we want to be. Yes. The forecast will come to Why? Um, I, I don't remember why, why the, the forecast. Research it. Go to Google and thumb them and, and plug that in. There, there's an awful lot with the Talit and the amount of knots that are on there and the amount of strings. So it reaches 288. All the commandments and all of that kind of stuff. Just fascinating. Um, but uh, again, um, what a great journey this is. Because this is our journey. We need to see this as this. Uh, and I pray that we can uh, continue to, especially as we roll into next semester, and they get into the promised land, and now we get to start building cities, and you begin to see them. How are they doing when they get to the promised land? And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Now, for next week, we're going to have, uh, we'll probably want to have class for about 45 minutes at all. And, and then we'll, we'll uh, go have fun with our feast. Uh, so if you have any questions or things that, are, that you'd like to discuss, maybe things that we missed, shoot me an email, let me know. Um, and I can and I can prepare. Otherwise, I'll, I'll I may try and finish up some of the stuff from Deuteronomy. When do you plan to start up in January? Well, that's a good question. I'll tell I'll tell you next week. Okay. I've got to make, got to look at the schedule. Okay. All right. Um, probably about the second week of January. Okay. <coughs>
the, the winter semester is interesting because there's about four more classes than there are in the, in the uh, fall. So we want to take advantage of that. So we don't have to hit it like the very first week of January. That you get settled back in the school. I'm just going to say, I'm sure everybody knows, but we need to kind of like leave the parking lot pretty quick like today. Yes, yeah, so thank you. There, I, I went back and forth and back and forth with Mike Walker and the FM thing to make sure that we had a place to park so we weren't parking in the park this morning and having to walk all the way in. So yeah, I want to gather up our stuff and head out west because they should be striking in the east and moving this way uh, today. So, great, thank you. Okay, Our Father in heaven, we are so very grateful to you for this institute class and for the preparations that Brother Hinckley has put into the teaching us and guidance. 